Welcome to the Possibility Podcast. I'm Mel Schwartz, your host and thought provocateur. I've been practicing psychotherapy and marriage counseling for nearly 25 years. Over this time, I've been so fortunate to witness countless breakthroughs, working with people individually, as a speaker, or in workshops. The insights that I've gained over this time have inspired me to write over 100 articles and several books, including the companion title to this podcast, The Possibility Principle, which you can find wherever books are sold. On this and every episode, I'll be introducing new ways of thinking, relating, and communicating to help you thrive in your life and reach the possibilities that you long for to live your best life. Think of this as a new game plan for living. I'm so excited to share with you four new digital programs to help you achieve your goals in life. These programs are overcoming anxiety, developing powerful and authentic self-esteem, creating resilient relationships, and raising resilient children. You can find these programs on my website, melschwartz.com backslash learn with Mel. Thanks so much for joining my growing community of possibility seekers, and I hope you enjoy the show. It is my great pleasure and honor today to be introducing my guest, Harville Hendricks, and Helen LaKelly Hunt. These people are the co-creators of the well-known Imago Relationship Therapy, and they've started a global social movement now called Safe Conversations. They are internationally respected as couples therapists, educators, speakers, activists, and New York Times best-selling authors of 10 books, including Getting the Love You Want, A Guide for Couples, which has sold more than 4 million copies. Harville has appeared on Oprah Winfrey 17 times. And Helen has been inducted into the Women's Hall of Fame and the Smithsonian Institute. And most importantly, they have six children and seven grandchildren. And that trumps everything else. Well, guys, welcome aboard. Love the opportunity to speak with you today, understand what you're doing and have you share with my audience and the universe what's going on in your work and in your lives. Where should we kick off? Should we talk about global safe conversations? We live in a world where people think they're individuals. <laughs> and so there's a value system. Gee, I want to be the best I can be. And people are raised that way with the best of intentions. Because what they don't realize is we're an interconnected human family. 
And we need to wake up and realize that we're a global family. And so as Harville and I have thought about transforming relationships that were disconnected into healthier ones, which Oprah really loved, he also had an idea, a healthy dialogue shouldn't just happen in a therapist office. It should happen everywhere. So this was his vision of getting this, quote, out of the clinic and into the public. And he asked me to partner with him to create safe conversations. And basically, we are not particles. We're particle wave dualities everywhere. And who's the particle and who's the wave here? Well, yeah. And I I think where I'd like to pick up on that is that Helen and I, I used the word one time that we have our relationship has been a saga that of coming from different sides of the economic world, different sides of the social world, coming together in the educational and clinical and therapy world, that we feel we have sort of co-created each other. And, and I guess that's the right word is co-creation, because I know that while uh, Helen has been indispensable in the thinking process that has produced Imago Relationship Therapy and in its distribution and putting it into form so that we not only co-created each other, we've also co-created our careers. Uh, Even though for a long time, Helen was very much involved in the women's movement. She was at the same time very much a contributor to the evolution of Imago therapy. And that has become a thing itself that uh, we we were on this morning with chancellors and uh, distinguished professors in a new university called Daybreak University, which was actually started by one of our students who's a Korean academic, in which um, Imago has become a lo- location for research for an EMA and a PhD in Imago. So that what began as a conversation probably on our second or third date, because we discovered we were both recently divorced, we dealt with the question of a rupture at that point, which has been our life. What We started with why do couples fight? And why do couples fight was how come we are divorced? Because we were both, we thought we were pretty good people and shouldn't be divorced. Uh, we were professionals. And that led to why does anybody fight? And that led then to a research, that is a research question. And that's what led then to the books of trying to answer that question, not only with an answer, but also with a solution. And so therapy evolved for us and became successful. Like in, we're in 61 countries and have an institute of 40 faculty who teach of therapists to become Imago therapists. About 2,500 people around the world practice Imago therapy. But what happened to get us to safe conversations is this second sort of depression that I had. The first one was I burned out. And those early years after the Oprah show, there was so much publicity and so much opportunity that I stayed on the road way too much and really went flat and burned out and had to literally had to quit. I I didn't care uh, anymore. So I was interested that I, as a total visionary, didn't care at all. So I had to rest. And about a year later, uh, that's when we moved to New Mexico. And about a year later, realized I just needed a year off. I don't didn't really need to move to another state. But about 15 years ago now, 
as the time passes, we're having another second conversation and of, of fundamental character about uh, about our lives and. Uh, ever since I've known Helen, she's been, quote, an activist in the feminist world. So I absorbed this thing about more than therapy is needed. You need to change uh, the structure of the system. And half the people on the planet have never had e- equity, uh, not even freedom, uh, even though it was promised, but not even, but certainly not equity. And uh, I had this insight that you can't change the world doing therapy. You can heal the wounded and the broken, but you don't change the systems that produce the wounded and the broken by healing the wounded and broken. You simply mitigate the suffering, but you don't change the source of the suffering. And I hadn't thought about that, that the system itself, our our economic, political and social systems and value systems create families and couples with belief systems and ideologies that are as functional in the problems they bring to us as their psychological backgrounds are. And I began to see there are two diagnoses. One is what it was like to be a child in your family is showing up in this marriage. And the second one was that family was birthed in a culture in which relationship was not valued. But your competence, your excellence, your success and your ability to talk, but no Helen has a famous phrase, we get paid for talking, but nobody pays anybody but therapists for listening, and that the listening factor was gone. So as a result of that, and Helen was absolutely interested in that, and we decided we would call together a group of um, of our colleagues, John Gottman and Julie Gottman and Dan Siegel, uh, Stan Tatkin and Ellen Bader and her husband, Peter. Sue Johnson. And Sue Johnson and her husband. And we asked them if they would be willing. We were at the Evolution for Psychotherapy Conference uh, in 2009. And uh, Helen didn't, you didn't go to that conference. So I was, that, that one she usually goes, but this year she didn't go. But they had lunch with all of us who were there. For some reason, I was in the room with all my colleagues in the field of couples therapy. And this was not a couples therapy conference. This is the evolution of psychotherapy conference. But we, we happened to have lunch, and I don't know if that was arranged. But at any rate, there I was sitting around the table with all these people I just mentioned. And I had this second thought. What if all of us who have visibility, who have systems, who have students, who have research, who have some credibility in the culture, came together and basically supported relationship as a primary value in the culture and just took a stand that shifted the conversation from subjectivity and the self to interactivity and relationship. What if we just did that? So we proposed that. I asked Helen if if I proposed that and they all agreed, would she be okay to let's do that at the ranch? I did. They all agreed. And in 2010, they all came to the ranch for a weekend. So there we were at the ranch with this, um, this group of distinguished people. And the question was, how can we do that? Everybody wanted to do it. Well, the long story, I want to cut short by saying we met for four years, twice a year, and crafted a vision 
and a vision that most of them couldn't engage in because it required you to be pretty much full-time and to be financially independent. And none of them were, and I could do it full-time. Helen has resources. And so they sort of challenged us to initiate the project in Dallas, which we did. And there was, I think it, we, we finally got here in about 2013 or 14. And we've been here doing Safe Conversation. We changed the name of Imago Dialogue, which is the therapeutic intervention, which we felt we could extract from therapy and put into the public domain. Everybody needs to learn dialogue. All need to move away from monologue and move from vertical conversation to lateral conversation. So we've been here and we started off with a not-for-profit and we found that as our vision grew, the vehicle was too small our vision became global. And by that, we mean the tipping point of the world's population in 2050. So we gave ourselves a 30-year timeline and a target audience of 3.8 billion people to reach during that timeline to teach them the dialogical process uh, or how to move into connection, how to move into relationship, and how to um, bring essentially a connecting process as a cultural thing rather than a competitive process, a connecting process. And that would change the value system of the culture from individualism to relationality. And we think maybe be the next step in human evolution if we could create a relational civilization. What you have described here, I have long believed is the most vital, essential shift, not only in our evolving consciousness and humanity, but survival as a planet. And as you may know, in my work and in my recent book, I spoke to the fact that we're rooted in the 17th century mechanistic worldview of separation within a relationship. So we compete rather than collaborate. I'm reminded of Gregory Bateson's quote, all things are defined by relationship. But we don't relate, we don't collaborate. We're in train to win and to compete. And, you know, what you're espousing, of course, runs pure to my heart and to the quantum belief of inseparability. So we have to replace that paradigm of separation with one of inseparability or a co-participatory paradigm. And we use this word dialogue. Dialogue is an often used but misunderstood word. Dialogue comes from the Greek dialogus, meaning flow of meaning. We don't check in with each other about, well, what do you mean by that word? Are we on the same page? We have these monologues, these distinct serial monologues and no dialogue. So I'm going to turn that back over to you to speak on. That resonate with everything that you're saying about that. But I have an embarrassment. And the embarrassment is that Helen has had read the Tao Physics mm-hmm. and also the other the other book that was a, a popular book on physics back uh, before I did and when I did and had talked to oh, me about the, the field. <clears throat> no, oh, it's the um, the dance of the Wheelie Masters. Oh yes, I find that I remember more what's in a book than I remember of the title. So Helen had talked for years that we need a new definition of the self, and that the particle wave duality provided an opportunity for not a 
the static self that was in psychotherapy, <clears throat> which was a self created out of the atom of Newtonian physics. The atomistic physics became the basis for uh, individualistic psychology. And the self is... Um, it's something, it, you know, it's concrete, like it's the particle, you can describe it. And she was saying, no, the self actually is like the particle wave duality. It's a constant oscillation. And I never picked it up. I'm, I, I didn't realize that I was very embedded in the very value system I was opposed to. And that I had been so trained in the Freudian model, and then later on in all of the other psychodynamic, even behavioral models that were still about the self, that I didn't realize that I was initially constructing a couples therapy that was about two selves. Yes. And that, so that was just simply parallel psychotherapy instead of couples therapy. But dialogue uh, emerged in that. Out of mine and Helen's relationship, she she was the originator of dialogue because when we were first started dating, we have always had an intense relationship, negative and positive, and we were having a negative in moment of intensity. In in Helen's living room, uh, in the first three months of our relationship, before we became a couple, we were just sort of dating, and Helen said, "Stop! Let one of us talk and the other one listen and take turns." And that slowed us down. And I'm a clinician with a lot of training to notice subtlety. And I noticed I calmed down when I stopped to hear Helen out and she calmed down when she stopped to hear me out. So I took it to the clinic where I'd been doing mm -hmm. uh, problem solving therapy with couples and turned them to face each other and say, don't talk to me anymore. Talk to each other and I'll help you do that. Thinking about James Hillman, a Jungian yeah. analyst, and he, I found some pages um, which I'd like to show with you. His definition of conversation, it was conversation. Talking that, with. With, but then verse. It's like you exchange. You, yeah. you And then he has a quote <clears throat> that nothing changes until ideas change. And um, the usual idea is something's wrong with the other person. Yeah. That's the idea oh, you it, have. Oh, it, is that not true? According <laughs> to Hillman. But then conversation can yes. open everything up. Yeah. And so this is, we are so appreciative of you, Mel, for giving us a chance. Like everyone should be talking about what will shift the polarization that exists yeah. into the world into meaningful conversation. Right. So we began to experiment with dialogue with couples. This was about in the, oh, it was the late 70s. But I had no idea that this was radical. It was like, oh, this is working better. And my academic side didn't go into research until years later to see, well, what else has been done about dialogue? Only to discover very little. Uh, Isaacs, and there were two or three, two or three books, but not not in the therapy world. Uh, therapy world hadn't hadn't gotten to that. But we then evolved uh, dialogue. It took about ten years to evolve it into a very uh, explicit process with three steps and that mirroring, validating, and empathizing. And if you help put people learn how to talk like that, then they solve their problems. But if they can't talk, 
and connect, then they just, their problems, they keep. Question I have for you just to dig in here a bit. When I am facilitating dialogue, part of my process is to quiet what I know and to suspend <laughs> assumptions. Come into a place of genuine, authentic, shared inquiry. So I'm curious, is that part of your process of dialogue? So when someone wants to say something, they say, I would like to say something is now a good time. That person is called the sender. And if the other person says it's a good time, that means they shut up and let the sender talk. <laughs> and the sender says something and the person mm -hmm. mirrors them back, the receiver. In our dialogue, one person is the sender and the other receives. Yeah. And the magic phrase of our dialogue process has been when the person, the receiver mirrors the sender, they then say, Mel, is there more about that? And then if the sender has more, they send that. Mm -hmm. And then there's a validation step and an empathy step. I see yeah. from your point of view, I yeah. see why that makes sense. But anyway, it's the magic phrase, is there more? Now, in our view, Mel, we didn't understand why suddenly we were told the sender relaxes in the person's presence, even though they know the other person disagrees, if someone says, is there more? Well, that got me on a search, Mel, on is there more is a place you wonder. Yeah. And people, so a real quick three-sentence summary. Studying brain science, there's the lower reactive brain, and then there's, as you know, I'm sure in many of your listeners, there's a left brain hemisphere, logical knowing. There's a right brain hemisphere, connect the dots, intuitive knowing. And between the two is something called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is where, where you don't know. Well, when I first heard that phrase, uh, I was flipping through a brain book and I thought, that is the stupidest thing I ever heard. This writer said, this part of the brain is the most important part of the brain, not knowing, and it results in neural integration. Well, I didn't get what it did. It's just, how is not knowing a positive thing? Mm -hmm. And But then I read the second paragraph and the third paragraph. He said, you have to move beyond predication. And then he began to call the state the Dalai Lama state. And it's where you wonder. Well, I got really interested in the subject of wonder. My last comment is Harville said, Helen, I've been listening to for you for a year talking about this. I've looked through all the articles in psychology that have ever been written. There isn't one on wonder. Yeah, why don't that's, you that's a write, shocking, shocking discovery. Why don't you write the, the absence of wonder and curiosity? Which right just stagnates the vitality. But I've written that the absence of wonder and curiosity equals depression. I have never worked with an individual who has wonder and curiosity and is at the same time depressed. Right. And cool. I will send you a copy of the article that got published. It's the only one published in a psychological journal. And I'm now writing a book on wonder. So just to further this point, Let's look at the word wonderful. There was a time when wonderful meant something full of wonder. 
an incredible rainbow. Now your kid comes home and gets an A on their report card and you say, wonderful. Rather than a sense of wonder, it's become a job well done, which goes back to productivity as opposed to relatedness. We've lost our curiosity and engagement with the universe. Yes. There's a word that I stumbled across. I won't take credit for it. It's called normosis. Normosis, N-O-R-M-O-S-I-S. I speak to this in my book, The Possibility Principle. Here's what normosis is. When we acclimate to a dysfunction and come to think of it as normal. So one out of three people experience anxiety or depression. That becomes commonplace. It's normosis. No, it's not normal. It needs to speak to the fact that we are playing by a rule book for life that devalues us. And that's why we suffer. So rather than victimizing the victims, as you alluded to earlier, what we need to do is look at the large mega system of how we're operating. Win, compete, invalidate each other. That's why we suffer in the way we do. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're raised to become the best, like yeah. be the best, win the spelling bee, uh, get the best book report and uh, win the debate team. And you can go compete in the nationals. I recently wrote a piece saying if you always have to do your best, you'd be neurotic. That would be a compulsion <laughs> to always do my best. Yes. We hope not. Yes, you do. (laughs) They said your grandparents and maybe your parents. And a lot lot of us are still. Actually, actually my parents never said that. They would say, you know, try your hardest. Oh, good for them. Give it your best effort. Yeah. But the cultural value system is actually supportive of perfectionism. Yes. And and not knowing that that supports a, a neurosis of enormous proportions and contributes to depression and anxiety and anger. All the things that we're trying to treat are caused by, and this is, this. we may be wrong about this, but I'd love to hear your comment. All the things that, quote, we try to treat or heal or, or do something to mitigate is caused by the unconscious absorption of a value system in our culture. I, I, I agree entirely. And to speak to the per- issue of perfectionism, that's about the wonder of absence of, of wonder and curiosity. Do you imagine looking at it? Let's use the rainbow again, looking at the rainbow and saying great rainbow, but that orange band is not as wide as the blue band. So I'm fond of saying the only irony around perfectionism is the closest thing to perfection is being present. But the irony is the perfectionist is never present. They're either ruining the decisions of the past or worrying about the future. Perfectionism does not coordinate with reality. So your point, Harville, of course we dysfunction. Yes. And we don't even know it because we're like fish in the water. Oh, and, and when you discover that, that becomes liberating for some and traumatic and traumatic for others. So you ask the question, does dialogue start with a kind of clean slate? And what we do, we start off with um, with an appointment. It's now a good time uh, to talk to you about and we give a topic. We figure you can talk 
If you know dialogue, you can talk about anything without polarizing. And if you don't know, everything becomes a polarization. And the first thing we ask is to make eye contact and to take three to five deep breaths so that people settle into that. And you probably know this research. I, I just love researchers and do studying research because there's research now is that I can actually tell uh, if, your eye, if your pupils are uh, large or small. I don't actually consciously see your pupils, but my brain sees your pupils. And if they're small, my brain is going to say closed system. If they're large, my brain's going to say open. And that's going to determine what I'm going to say, whether I'm going to be vulnerable or whether I'm going to be defended. And the deep breaths, while making that contact, opens the pupils for most people. If they sit there long enough, they'll open. Then everybody, as you know, starts off with their story. And what uh, Helen was talking about and what she has taken and is now going to do a whole book on is that, so I mirror you back and say, did I get it, which is an accuracy check. And then then I ask you, is there more? Rather than, okay, I got it. Let me tell you what I think. So there's not a shift. There's a, you could call it deepening. But what happens then is people drop below their story and begin to say things that they didn't know they thought or felt. Mm-hmm. That begins then to show up and then they break the story into something new experienced by them while being listened to and experienced as new by the receiver while listening. And so that becomes the creative moment is out of that. Is there more, which is curiosity that leads to wonder. So by the way, I'm just going to interrupt for a moment. So that's a great title for a book. Is there more? And what you just described in that process is dropping below. For me, the word revelation comes up. Oh, it's a use that. It's a revealing, right? I'm having a revelation rather than dropping below. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. We're going to borrow that. Thank you. Pleasure. Mel, is this a time that I could give you a huge appreciation? I'll take it. Okay, so I just want all of these listeners uh, to know that Mel's amazing book, The Possibility Principle, is endorsed by Larry Dossie. And Larry Dossie is someone that Harville and I read out loud every night before we go to bed. We think Larry Dossie, who's a medical doctor and in Dallas, Texas, was one of the most respected medical doctors in the country did something really weird which was to talk about the power of prayer and i don't know what his following is now but i'm pretty sure it doubled but maybe it didn't but i don't know (laughs) but i know he he got many 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 people like just how how could a doctor write a book on prayer that makes zero sense doctors don't do things like that and anyway that he admires you so much. I just want all your listeners to make sure that not only have you read Mel's book, but get 10 and give them to your friends. Well, thank you very much. That's very thoughtful of you. And I was very taken with Larry's, I was going to say recent, but I lose track of time, but his recent book, One Mind, which speaks to the paradigm shift we're talking about here it would be a different 
humanity, a different human experience, conflict, hatred, war, greed, greed. And greed is not just financial greed. Greed oriented towards self as distinct from other. Um, Everything shifts if we could only take the opportunity to shift paradigms. So I've been asked, well, Mel, why has it taken 350 years and we're still rooted in 17th century thinking? You may not be familiar with this, but I'd like to introduce it to you. Um, I gave a TEDx talk on it, which is as long as we communicate using the two B verbs, am, is, are, were, be, those verbs are fixed and inert and they create separation. Every time you use a to be verb, you isolate yourself from the other. So there was a movement many decades ago called E prime language, speaking and communicating absent to be verbs. They speak of objective, distinct realities, which we're suffering from. So my thought was make this paradigm shift. When we begin to think and write without using to be verbs, we take ownership. It's participatory. The last chapter of my book, The Possibility Principle, is implementing to be removing the to be verbs. So instead of saying you are making an objective statement, which separates me from you, I say, may I share how I experience you? Mm -hmm. Wow, what a shift. There's no right or wrong. There's no competition. So I think that the fundamental shift in the worldview requires moving away from the to be verbs. That allows us to unfetter ourselves from the illusion of separation and objectivity. Thank you. What I love is simplicity. And that is one of those simple things that's fundamental. It's like oxygen means you live because it moves from the fixity of the atom in classical physics to the oscillation, constant oscillation and dynamic interactivity and flow of quantum physics. Uh, I I do not know how many uh, of our therapists have joined you and and me and Helen in this conversation. And I'm embarrassed that it was only about three years ago that I really got it that psychology was rooted in classical physics. Because we had developed a relational paradigm, but as a scholar and researcher, I couldn't ground it in anything because there was no place to put relationship in psychology. And then I began to research psychology and found, of course, psychology is rooted in uh, philosophy, which was evolved in the 17th, 18th, 19th century out of uh, the classical theory of the atom. Things are fixed and they're deterministic and they're not connected. So I was was saying to Helen, I have to find some way to ground relationship as a construct. And there's no discipline to ground it in. And then one day uh, she kind of reminded me that uh, we'd been looking at uh, quantum physics and started back to look at that and discovered there's a subset called quantum field theory and quantum physics, which is the natural ground because quantum field theory says that reality is a field. 
of, um, and it's a field of energy, information, and consciousness. All of those words apply to that, and all particles arise out of that. We were writing our clinical academic text for clinicians, and, and it took us 10 years to do it, and it was 10 years because I'm stuck. I can't find a ground for the fundamental construct of relationality. And you can't just make this stuff up and get academic, get the people you really want to take you seriously, to take you seriously. It's there. It's quantum Quantum field theory is the ground. So we wrote that book, Doing Imago Therapy in the Space Between, now shifting the ground from classical physics to quantum field theory. And now that makes couples, couplehood make sense. And all the things you see in couple and dialogue, we didn't have to invent a new way to do therapy because for some blessed reason years ago, we evolved the dialogue process, which is, in fact, very congruent with field theory. Yes. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to throw that in that you and I and I do not know how many others uh, in the field of therapy have discovered that we are locked unconsciously in the 17th century uh, and having a hard time because that's why we're treating people, why we have 350 diagnoses, 286 uh, types of therapy. All of that are indications of a system that's defunct. So you and Helen and me, and I think I know two or three other people who are writing in this field. I don't know if they've done book link stuff yet, but there's an art, few articles. So this it's the new it's the new frontier for help for the helping professions is to apply quantum field theory now to the human situation. And, and as you spoke to the multitude of um, diagnoses. There's a concept called reification. Yes. The mind makes something up and then forgets we made it up and thinks of it as real. Yeah. So when I, when I write about the uh, issue around diagnosis, I say, you know, initially it made sense. Some psychiatrist in the DSM is sitting around talking about a phenomenon that's occurring and they create some words to describe it. Let's say ADHD. So as a description, I have no issue with it. The problem is uh, Alfred the North Whitehead may have called it the fallacy of misplaced no, concreteness. Yes. Now we say someone has ADHD. How can you have something that doesn't exist? It's a description, <laughs> not a thing. So as, as a culture of therapists, it is absolutely bereft. Now, if we used two e, e prime language and removed the two B verbs and said, you know, you have behavior, therapists get so annoyed with me when I do this. They say, yeah. well, what should we say? Well, you could say, you know, you have behavior that appears consistent with what we call ADHD. Notice there's no two B verb in there. Mm -hmm. right? It's represented because as David Bohm taught us, thought represents something but we forget the thought is telling us something. We lose the representation and we create objective concrete realities, bringing us back into that stuck inert state that you're speaking about of the old paradigm. I'm fond now of saying, you know, I'm having a thought. May I tell you what my thought is telling me? That is representative 
and consistent with a quantum participatory paradigm. So yes. it, it is in the languaging and the communication that we make the shift. Yeah, that's true. That that really I feel refreshed with what you're saying about how really fundamental and foundational and simple that is, is that we are engaging in descriptions, not in in descriptions of phenomena. We are not engaging in descriptions of things, but simply of things that are, you know, it's behaviors that are moving. We've been looking at photographs rather than movies of the human situation. Movies is always changing, and the photograph is that one thing. And simple like that frees you from predication that Helen was talking about, from judgment. You can no longer be judgmental if you can get to the fact that you don't know enough to be judgmental about another person. Yes. Helen, I know you have some thoughts on this. Oh, yeah. And I know we maybe should be winding this up, but we don't want our listeners not to go yet because a few more things. My last comment is uh, Mel Harville has given me permission to tell at our workshops the last 10 years. We pulled our family. Well, first I was dragging Harville to therapists because uh, I had a commitment when I married him to improve him. And, and uh, she did. Get things yeah. written, find best publishers. And I was the, you and I, as we've talked, I'm the implementer of a lot and behind the scenes implementer. Also, my passion was to uh, make sure he could be the best possible. Well, poor Harville hated to be around me because I was always trying to improve him. So he was miserable. And there were reasons I was miserable. And uh, he's given me permission to say he would go, Helen, I teach this. I don't do it. And so we, so I dragged him to a therapist and we thought we're smarter than that therapist. So we, I dragged him to another therapist and we were smarter than that one. And the third one called us the couple from hell and fired us. So we had no choice but to divorce. So we went to the divorce attorneys and we pulled our family together and we said we're divorcing. And then at a Imago Therapy global meeting at the end of the five-day meeting when Jean Houston was our uh, keynote speaker, we got up on the podium and said, we respect you too much to not let you know. We don't do dialogue at home and we're divorcing. Mm. And then we walked off the podium. So there were a few things that then began to turn it around. And um, on my end, I just realized when I was reading about the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, poor Harville, I am not quiet in his presence. I don't wonder about him because I'm smarter than him in certain ways and I want him to get it that he should be he should be to be to be to be he was miserable being married to me and I think this is my final comment I started well first I started asking him questions instead of telling him stuff but then the real joy came is when I was with Harville just enjoying the silence And the reason I wanted to share this with you and your listeners, I am the happiest woman on the planet because I wonder these days in my life and it feels so good to wonder. That releases dopamine, acetylcholine, norepinephrine, 
and serotonin, the most relaxing neurochemicals, if you wonder about life and if you wonder about people, don't get mad, don't get upset, don't get anxious. That releases cortisol and adrenaline and other people around you are miserable and you're miserable. (laughs) If you want to give yourself a gift, S-H-U-T, U P shut up <laughs> just, be, just be quiet and listen and enjoy things in the room you hadn't noticed before when Harvard and I take walks we do a 30 minute walk every day that was a time I used to talk maybe he doesn't want to talk so I don't raise anything and I get to enjoy looking at the leaves and the trees and the clouds and listen to birdsong so that's a happy life that is just beautiful and um, personally in behalf of my listeners I want to thank you for for sharing those intimacies and you know (laughs) what you did on stage Harville I am a proponent of another meme that we have all wrong um, acting strong is weak because it's acting. Embracing <laughs> vulnerability is strength because when you embrace your vulnerability and share it, you no longer set anyone else up as your judge. It's so freeing. And that's what I was hearing in these an- anecdotes that you both shared. Well, I, I can't thank you enough. This has been fascinating. I wish we had 10 hours today. To continue because it's really generative for me as well to have these kind of dialogues. And I would offer to you for future consideration that we might, I would offer myself to you to explore with you the importance of removing those to be verbs in our communication. I've just written down your phrase and I've got tears in my eyes that vulnerability is strong. When you choose to be vulnerable and share mistakes you've made or ways you've flopped, (laughs) that that is strength because everybody's flopped so we get to interconnect as a human family. So love, love to both of you. To you, Mel. Let's do this again soon. Uh, we'll be happy to. This was wonderful and great to see you again after so many years. You all, guys. Thank you. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Possibility Podcast with me, Mel Schwartz. To learn more about this episode's topic and other similar subjects, please be sure to check out my book, The Possibility Principle. Your feedback is always welcome. You can comment on this or any episode of The Possibility Podcast by simply visiting melschwartz.com and clicking on the podcast link in the menu. You can also reach out via email to mel at melschwartz.com. The very best way to make sure you never miss an episode of the Possibility Podcast is to follow the show and subscribe for free in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll get new episodes as soon as they're released. And while you're at it, please take a moment to rate and review the Possibility Podcast in Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. 
ratings and reviews help raise the visibility of the Possibility Podcast, and that makes it so much easier for new listeners to discover the show. So thank you for your honest review. And one last thing. I've released a brand new series of programs on overcoming anxiety, creating powerful, authentic self-esteem, raising resilient children, and cultivating resilient relationships. You can check out these programs by going to melschwartz.com backslash learn with Mel. Thank you for listening. And until next time, have a great day and keep summoning up all those new possibilities that await you.